if you would have told me <laughs> two and a half years ago that I would be in a relationship with a man that I just genuinely am in love with, I'm not lying, I really am in love with him, I would have told you you're crazy. But we serve a bigger God than that. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, if you're new to the show, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing views in a way that builds bridges but not barriers. Our guest today is Mariah Schrelocker. Mariah is a writer, photographer, and general manager in the fitness and wellness industry. She's released her first poetry chapbook last year and has a second available. She resides in central New Jersey and is passionate for justice and for lost souls who find the wellspring of life called Jesus. Mariah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Joey. I'm excited we got to connect. Thanks for saying yes. Yeah, of course. So, Mariah, we usually ask our guests first question, you know, how did you get introduced to church and faith? And that question for you is connected to our topic today. So why don't we start with answering that question and then we'll just keep the conversation going. Uh, So how did you originally get introduced to church, to faith? What's some of your spiritual background? Absolutely. So I did grow up um, in a Christian home. My, uh, My father was actually a youth pastor. So youth pastor and marital counselor. So you can, uh, uh, you can imagine, paint a, paint a picture of definitely having a grounded, firm foundation in faith. Um, so I have three younger sisters. I am the oldest of four girls. Uh, definitely growing up in, in that environment, it was a, a good Christian foundation home. And uh, it, it was just always very apparent to me that, you know, I knew what truth was. Hmm. Now, as we'll get into with some of your story, there's been there's been quite a journey from that time to to where you are now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> By no means has it been uh, what I just painted in the beginning of this conversation. It has been a journey and a lot of uh, a lot of rocky road, a lot of um, of hardship coming from from that place I grew up in. Hmm. Now. Like you had said to me before we started recording, you're an open book and, and we're ready to dive into to some of your story. So when did same-sex attraction begin for you? Yeah, absolutely. So from a very young age, Joey, I, uh, from a very young age, I remember um, feeling like there was something different inside of me. I think you know, if you ask my father, he, he jokes about it now, but he says, you know, Mariah, you were a very serious child and as light and lively as I can be. And I am in the sales industry, uh, even from, from a a young age, I had a seriousness to me. And now looking back, I think that I was just always really in tune to, uh, the deeper, the deeper parts of life and what was underneath the surface. Now, how does that tie into uh, same sex attraction at a young age? I, I always remember um, feeling as though I, I was looking for something that, that the, the boys, you know, the boys just didn't have. It's like even from the age of five, I always remember thinking that 
well, boys are just dumb, you know, and, and they're silly. And I don't like that. Um, but I think what really played a part in this too, I remember feeling my, my youngest sister, not the youngest one, the one right under me, Olivia, she's a dancer her whole life. So from a very young age, we would be at dance competitions um, all the time, all the time, family functions, weekends, always at dance competitions. And I do remember uh, sitting there and being fascinated by what I was seeing, the sensuality on stage. I remember looking at, um, older females, and, and when I say older, uh, these are females in, in middle school at the time, in high school, but to me, they were older, and they were beautiful, and, and almost like goddesses up there, and, um, you know, I remember being taken back by how effortless their feminine nature was, and I felt like, I remember sitting there just thinking, I don't have that. Whatever that is, it intrigued me, but it scared me at the same time. And there was this, it was like a, a magnet pulled me towards it, but scared me. And I, I, it's just so vivid in my head that I, I wanted whatever that was. But I felt like because I didn't naturally have that, it, it was like my, my feminine part wasn't there at that age. I, I felt like it was easier for me to be attracted to that and to desire that rather than desiring uh, the bo- the boys at that time. You know, forgive me for any ignorance on, on my part, but did you ever feel that same-sex attraction was wrong in any way or was this just sort of, hey, this is how I feel? I did just, in a, for, a, for a long time, I just felt like this is just how I feel but there was shame connected to it. And that's, that's a, that's a key word here. Um, there was shame connected to a feeling that I did. Honestly, I did feel like it was natural. I did feel like it was a natural feeling, but of course, you know, I was very in tune to uh, Christianity and, and a lot of how the Christian church um, believes that, that that's wrong. And that's not okay. So there was shame connected to what I felt naturally for sure. Uh, however, in by no means did it deter me from pursuing that natural feeling. I was 110% hooked in. Like It felt like there were hooks inside of me, um, and, and nothing was going to tear me from that. And, and something I think that affects many Christians, although no one really wants to discuss it, is sexual idolatry in many forms. For example, yeah. the the one that everybody thinks of immediately when you say sexual idolatry usually is pornography. Did that mm-hmm. play into your experience at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what what was interesting about um about growing up for me and and going through all this, you know, confusion um at that time was what I think when you're so confused at, as a young age, uh, especially like the, in the way that I was, um, when you're presented with this, this kind of conflict inside of you, I remember just wanting an outlet, um, a sexual outlet to, to understand myself. And, and that's, that's something I think we don't talk enough about is that a lot of times pornography is not even so much rooted in the distortion of, of, of this, of the pleasure. It's more, 
and and the reasons why it's wrong. I think it's more curiosity when when kids are so young. Um, and then the curiosity lights you up like a pinball machine, and and you become addicted to to that release and to what what you experience and you discover, and it's like this world that just sucks you in like a black hole. And me having those feelings personally, um, the same sex feelings, same sex sex attraction, and then um, and still being intrigued by boys, but not understanding and not feeling connected to them. Uh, pornography definitely played a role in, in in me understanding things and kind of exploring things. And it, it did become addicting for a while, absolutely. So you had mentioned that sexual abuse had played a part in your journey with, you know, with as much transparency as you prefer, Mariah, can you share a a little bit about that experience? And, you know, did that experience play into everything else we've been discussing? Sure. So what's interesting about my story, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, is that um, sexual abuse, to some extent, yes, played a a role in my life. But um, it didn't come forth until I was in rehab. Uh, years and years later. So we're talking 20, 20 plus. Uh, no, it was about, you know, I, I think I was around the age of five when it happened. So it was, uh, you know, maybe 15 years later that this memory that I had came to surface when I started to go to therapy for the first time. And and I'm sure we'll get into my addiction a little bit, a um, little bit later in this conversation. But the the rehab I was in, it was, it was in a nine month halfway house. And, uh, we, we were forced to go to therapy. And at the time I wasn't mature enough and I, I didn't see the benefits of therapy, but I went because I had to comply. So we would sit with the therapist and the therapist would, would talk about all these things and try to dig up, you know, uh, what a good therapist does. And through those sessions and through getting clean, from, from heroin addiction, after a few months, I started to have these memories that the only way I can describe it, Joey, is like a movie clips started to come into my head and, and, and short, short, like snippets, short pictures, like a, like a rolling film uh, of, of some type of abuse started to pop up. And I, I don't remember much. I do remember, um, the the you know this man with a, a red shirt blonde hair but i i can't pick out you know i couldn't tell you what his face looked like for the life of me so i was i remember this this abuse happening and uh i did I, I went to lunch with my father he was allowed to come take us to lunch i remember one day and and i confronted him and i, I just said you know dad does this make sense uh were we ever at this house and whatnot and and he did end up uh telling me that Something I, I mentioned some things as a young kid, and uh, you know, my parents didn't think I would remember at the time, and I didn't, and that's the truth. I didn't remember until 15 years later, which just is a testament to how powerful the brain is, how it can suppress uh, painful memories, or, or you know, not trusting men and, and not understanding why those memories were filed back there, and and not that it was anything violent, but it was definitely. Um, molestation for sure yeah you know thank you for sharing that but i'm also so sorry that that's part of your story okay 
and, and you know, since we're going for it on this episode, you also mentioned that you had a heroin addiction, correct? How did that start? Sure. So one thing that plays into my story, um, and we talked about, you know, uh, same-sex attraction. And when I was, my first sexual encounter uh, happened to be with a female and I was young, I was in sixth grade. And the second that I had that, um, second that I had that encounter, it was like everything made sense. And I, I, it's like my body responded, my mind responded. I felt like my soul responded uh, to, to this female who was very advanced for her time uh, into things that were way beyond what a sixth grader should have been into, uh, borderline, uh, demonic stuff. And I personally think that had a lot to do with, with, um, where that took me. So after that experience, I just, I dated guys here and there and just never did anything for me. And I ended up, uh, dating a, a female for six and a half years. And when that, crumbled when that relationship crumbled I did not know what to do with myself because my identity all my eggs were in one basket my identity was in this relationship and it was hidden that relationship was hidden and that relationship was birthed actually in the church in youth group um so what was wild was that from a hidden relationship which heightened the almost almost how wrong it was it heightened everything about it and when that crumbled, I, I fell apart. And where heroin comes in is, I didn't realize at the time, but what I was doing was six and a half years of masking something and putting a Band-Aid on something. When that is ripped off and that you're forced to look at that open wound, I couldn't handle it. I, I wasn't equipped with the tools to handle something that painful. No one teaches you how to handle that. Now, given was I living right? Was I doing the right things? No, I was living in a in a relationship that I was hiding from everyone. Um, but it was still painful. And, and that's what I think the church needs to understand here. It's that when you take someone who's in a relationship, no matter what it's like, no matter who it's with, and they that falls apart, the last thing that person needs is to have, you know, a finger waving in their face. They need love more than ever. They need to be embraced. Um, and and they, they don't see anything else because all they see is, is, is the pain and the hurt in front of them. And that's, that's where I was. I found myself just completely broken. And I was actually at Liberty University at the time in Lynchburg, Virginia. Go figure the, you know, one of the biggest Christian universities in the world. Uh, so it was, I felt very alone. Um, I had a lot of gr- I had great roommates, you know, a lot of great friends who tried to hold me up during that time, but it wasn't strong enough to to deal with my the weight of of what I was wrestling with. And it just felt like six and a half years were just, you know, it caved in on me. So I turned to drugs. I started doctor shopping. I was very good at it. I was very good with my words. I still am. I just don't abuse it. Um, but I, I would go to, to doctors and I would lie and I would say, Hey, listen, I, I need Vyvanse. I need muscle relaxers. I need a Percocet. I need everything under the sun. And I would go to different doctors and they would give it to me. And I learned the verbiage and I learned what to say. And I outsmarted 
a lot of people. Uh, I ended up selling Suboxone, which is synthetic heroin. It actually is given to heroin addicts to wean heroin addicts off. I, I would go to get that just to sell it to get bags of heroin, which was cheaper. So I came back up here to New Jersey and, and I was, there was a time when I was literally living out of my car. Um, it was not, not a pleasant time. It was painful. I was numb in a lot of ways. And, and it was probably the most, the most just treacherous time of my life. It was hopeless. There is not a more hopeless place than a heroin addict literally living to get their fix every day. That is the bottom of the bottom. I was so fixated on that and that alone. And it, it's crazy thinking back on it and really talking about it, but nothing else mattered. Nothing else mattered. That, that fix every day was the only thing in my, in my uh, scope at that time. It really was. Now, talk to me a little bit about how you met Jesus. Sure. So the wild part about uh, the, the addiction and, uh, and the heroin, as, as I always tell people that there are drugs out there that are considered recreational drugs, and there are, you know, psychedelics, and there's coke, and, and you have shrooms, and all these drugs that really are, are playground drugs, quote-unquote. Um, and that is a different animal than heroin. And what I realized is that all these things that I kept trying to fill the hole in my heart with, my first girlfriend, drugs, heroin, other, other females, men in, in and out of that as well. Um, what I realized is that as bad as the heroin was, as awful as a drug that it is, and, and as, you know, helpless to the places that it, that it brought me, just helpless places, that wasn't the worst thing. The worst thing was the fact that I was, I was living without Jesus. And I knew the truth. That's, that's the crazy part. I knew the truth in the back of my head. It's like, God was like, I'm here. Hey, I'm here. And I pushed him, pushed him. And I had my running shoes on. And I was like, forget about it. You don't feel as good. I would laugh at the, at the ladies in church. She would say, you know, I'm so in love with Jesus. You know, I, I would just, I would laugh at that. I knew the truth. I believed it. Don't get me wrong. I believed it, but I didn't understand it. It wasn't personal to me. Jesus was never personal to me. I, I was, I was dating a female while I was doing heroin still. And I, uh, I ended up overdosing. I overdosed twice. I overdosed on the streets of Patterson, actually Newark, Newark, um, for the first time. And, and I woke up and I woke up and I kept just doing the same thing again, and again. Um, and then I overdosed a second time. And this time the doctor told me that if I didn't wake up within two seconds, he was going to cut a hole in my neck. And I woke up on the hospital bed and I was, I was shaking and I was naked and throwing up. And it was, it was humiliating. And at that moment, you think that that would be a wake up call, right? You think that that would be like, yes, you know, Mariah's going to turn to Jesus. Mariah's going to forget all about this. And don't get me wrong. That, 
that was that shook me up enough to stop doing heroin. It did not shake me up enough to turn to Jesus yet. That's what I mean when I say drugs, it was just another Band-Aid. I still was filling voids after that. So I ripped, you know, the IVs out of my arm, and I walked out of the hospital prematurely after I literally almost died. And I just said, all right, well, done with heroin, done with drugs. But I still went and chased females. I still went and chased another high for, for a couple more years. Uh, many more years, actually. So that wasn't the last one. And uh, and and about oh, a little over two years ago, I finally I had my another breakup. Um, and this one wrecked me to the point where, after three heartbreaks, a heroin overdose. I finally, finally was just you know I had just broken up with with my last girlfriend and and I I just remember weeping in my car and having this realization it's like I heard God speak to me and and he just said are you done like are you done are you going to hang up your runny shoes I love you and I was just weeping there and and I had a good job at the time too you know after I I overdosed I I got a great job in an industry and I turned my life around and I, I became, you know, involved in the fitness industry and healthy habits. Everything was there. My physical health was there. Um, I, I was, I was on a better track. I wasn't doing drugs anymore. I was away from all that crap, but my soul was still filthy and, you know, investing in relationships and, and making that my idol. It was like, I was just at a point where I realized these, these, relationships are just as toxic as the heroin I was putting into my veins. It's no different. I'm, I'm turning away from God. I'm running, running, running constantly and can't stop. I'm addicted to it. I was addicted to relationships the same way I was addicted to heroin. So I'm sitting there in my car, I'm weeping. And I just, at that point, gave my life, gave my life completely to God. I said, like, Lord, I don't know how painful this is going to be because I've never done it. And I'm freaking scared. I was so, so scared. But I was just at the point where I, I literally said out loud, my way is not working. If I keep doing this, I am going to end up in a really, really, really desperate place. And I don't want to feel more desperate than this. So, yeah, I, I finally was, that was the moment. I said, Jesus, you just, honestly, I know it sounds cliche, but Jesus really take the wheel because I didn't know what else to do. That was my breaking point. And he just wrapped me up at that point, wrapped me up completely. It's powerful. It's powerful to hear. Now, Mariah, what's something that you would say to someone who's walking through some of the things that you have and they feel stuck? They don't know what to do. I think... I think it's one thing for somebody to speak truth and uh, advice when you're not in that situation, but it's even more powerful when you've been there. So what's something that you would say to somebody who's, who's dealing with some of the things that you've dealt with? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to say that a lot of people, I notice a lot of people will say, you know, you, you just gotta, you gotta let go and let God and, 
yes, that's, that's true. But it's very hard for someone who really feels almost a physical addiction to, to whatever their idol is. And it doesn't need to be a physical addiction. It, it can be something like a relationship. Um, I think it's very hard to, to, to say, to give those cliches to, to people who, who are in it. I think what you need to understand when speaking to someone who, who's wrapped up in, with their idols and, and really just injected with this poison that they can't get rid of is that you're meeting them where they're at. Like sit with them where they're at. And to, to a certain extent, you need to let them hit rock bottom. And I know that sounds tough, like tough love, but there was no way, there was no way I was going to get to the point I got to without hitting rock bottom. It wouldn't have happened and it wouldn't have been as powerful. So I think the church needs to talk more about the reality of the success stories to, to give some hope rather than just throwing these little cliches out there. And, and if you do have a story like this, I think that people, sometimes people in the church who've been through what I've been through, they're almost afraid or timid to share their testimony. You can't be. You cannot be. We can't shy away from that. We need to give people hope. I truly believe that I, I've been through this for a reason. I think that God allowed me to run for an extended amount of time. And free will's mixed in with that, of course. But I believe that God wants to use my testimony. And it's scary. To be honest, it's very scary. There are many people out there who don't want to hear me say that, you know, was I living the right way? Was I addicted to females? I was addicted to females. I was not living the right way. And it's not that that being gay, I'm not saying you're wrong, you're gay, you're, you're living out this life, lifestyle. I'm not saying that. I want people to understand that I genuinely felt like it was impossible for me to fall in love with a man. Really, really felt like that. And I know that the female relationships I was in, they were toxic. They were emotionally unavailable females. They were females that I was trying to fix. And in return, I was going to fix myself, right? So that's how I always felt. Hey, let me find this wounded bird. Let me fix you so I can fix myself. And that is ugly. Nothing good can come out of that. I wasn't attracted to healthy things. And that's, that's what the church needs to understand, too. It's before, before pointing fingers at the gay community and saying you're wrong, they need to meet the human where they're at and say, wait is this even healthy? Let's look at the relationship you're in. What, what is toxic about this? And shine light on that rather than the, just condemning them for, for being in a homosexual relationship. Uh, that, that's a big, a big piece of this. And I do want to say also that a part of my story, a big part of my story, over two years ago, I was, I was wrestling hard with, uh, with saying, listen, God, all right, I'm going to refrain from these same-sex relationships that have caused me a lot of sorrow. And they were very, very toxic. And it's clear that this is not what you want for me because I'm in it for lust. I'm in it for the wrong reasons. So I get that, that it's not your best design for me. But does that mean I'm going to live alone? 
because I'm bred for companionship. I'm an ENFP. I'm a good lover. I want that. And I had to face that. I had to pray to God. I was on my knees every night crying at times, just saying, I don't want to be alone. I, like, this sucks. The three younger sisters that I have are, are coupled up, and they're getting married, and they have great fiancés and boyfriends. And I'm the one who's alone at, at Thanksgiving. And it's just, that was painful for me. But I gave that to God. I just, I gave that to him. And I just said, your will be done. It is well. And it didn't happen immediately. It wasn't a quick fix. And to be very transparent with you, I came to terms. I came to terms with the fact that let me breathe deep and face every day with going to work, being the GM that I am, being the photographer, the writer, being Mariah Sherlocker, but I'm going to be alone and I'm going to serve Jesus and that's all right. So as soon as I really came to terms with that, what's wild is God kind of placed this man into my life and in the most unorthodox way. And he placed this, this person into my life. And if you would have told me <laughs> two and a half years ago that I would be in a relationship with a man who I absolutely adore and, and cherishes me and that, that I just genuinely am in love with. I'm not lying. I really am in love with him. I would have told you you're crazy. But we serve a bigger God than that. And Jesus is my best friend, my comforter. He is the only reason why that came to fruition. It's amazing. It really is. And I know we throw that word out there all the time, but given the entire context of your story, it is amazing. Yeah, thank you. It is. It is. It's all God. Yeah. And, and Mariah, as we bring our time to a close, What's something that you think the church as a whole could do to move in a more positive direction on, on this subject or maybe something that you're just observing? So here's something that I really wrestled with when I was spending that time alone, those two and a half years alone. This is what I, I found very discouraging when I would go to church. We are focused on couples. Couples are so praised, so almost worshipped inside the church. And that is beautiful. A lot of that is so beautiful. And a lot of that is good. And it comes from a godly place. But it's not everything. And there were phenomenal single people in the Bible. And I remember feeling for years when I would go to church, in these welcoming places that I was still alone. I can attest to that. And I just want, I, I really want the church to be better at loving people who haven't found their person yet. And even if they never do, they should be a part of our family. They are God's children as well. And that's something that really breaks my heart. Um, even now, and being in a relationship that I, I'm so blessed with, I look at single people in the church and, and I have a heart for them right now because I understand it. And I think we need to do more to welcome them into our family. We need to do more than, you know, just having couples retreats. 
and um and and things of that nature and again this is great marriage is beautiful and and sex was designed by god so it's it's a great thing but i really want to emphasize making sure single people are loved while they are single mm -hmm. It's a great word, Mariah. Thank you. And, and thanks so much for making the time to be on the show and share your story. Where can people follow up with you and connect with you online? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So my, my Instagram is Mariah, M-A-R-I-A-H, two underscores, Dawn, D-A-W-N, another under, underscore. And uh, that is a lowercase M. I believe someone to let me know that <laughs> that there's another profile with my name, but it's it's uppercase. So definitely lowercase Mariah underscore underscore Dawn underscore. Well, that's awesome. We'll make sure we throw it all in the show notes. But again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Joey. Really appreciate it. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.